The theme I'd like to explore today and for the next few days is continuing reflection on conditionality. That seems to have become the theme of this retreat. And uh, I'm going to do that by, I'd like to explore with you the teaching of dependent origination. I'm going to try it in a a different way, just breaking it up into pieces so it's not like such a full download each day. And I'd like to start with um, a sutta where the Buddha pointed in a way to where this understanding helps to correct our usual notions of reality. This is the Kachana Gata Sutta. Kachana is the name of the person the sutta is given to. It's in the Samyutta Nikaya, for those of you who are interested in this. Chapter 12, Sutta 15. And Kachana Gata is asking the Buddha about what is right view? Venerable Kachanagata approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said right view. Right view. In what way is there right view? And the Buddha kind of steps back and and says, well, he steps back here and he says, well, here's what people mostly think. This is wrong view. So he says, for the most part, This world, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. And so, stop there and reflect on what that might mean. The notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. Let's think just for a moment about the sense of self, for example. We tend to believe in the existence of a self. We depend upon that in some fashion, depend upon that notion. We construct our our lives around that notion. I am, I am somehow traveling through time and space. This, the existence of this. So that's one side. You know, we tend to kind of congeal around something that orients our our lives in some way. Something exists that has meaning, that has a, a solidity, and we orient around that. It's just one way of understanding this notion of existence. I think there are many levels to this understanding. And hearing something along the lines, for instance, of the teaching of not-self, we might start to try to figure out, well, how does this self not exist? And so we may then switch to kind of the other side. Well, if it doesn't exist, then it, I mean, if, it, if, if, if existence isn't what this self is, then it must not exist. And if it isn't something, then it's nothing. And the Buddha points to both sides as having confusion. He continues, For one who sees the arising of the world and elsewhere in the teachings, the the use of the term the world 
refers to the world of experience, the world. He says, this fathom long body is what I call the world. This fathom long body with its sensing and experiencing, this is what I call the world. And so when one who sees the arising of experience, or one who sees the arisings in experience, as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of this world of experience as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. And so pointing to how when we see that things are coming, that experience is being put together, is, being, is, is arising. There's no question that, that uh, there's no even consideration of the possibility of non-existence because one is seeing the, the coming into being. And if one is seeing the ending of experience in that, ex- if that exploration, that things end, that there's a cessation, a kind of a falling away, I'm pointing to that some this morning, this just streaming, nowhere to land. For one who sees that as it really is with correct wisdom, there's no notion of thingness or existence with respect to experience. This world, Kachana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. But the one with right view does not cling. Does not take a stand about myself. This one has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arising and what ceases is only suffering ceases. Knowledge about this is independent of others. It is in this way, Kachana, that there is right view. So again, the pointing to some aspect of clinging being perhaps why we land on existence or non-existence. When we're not shackled by that, there's no taking a stand in either existence or non-existence. There's this understanding of arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. And he goes on. Again, point to these two sides of our our usual way of engaging in the world. All exists, Kachana, he says, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle with ignorance as condition mental formations come to be with mental formations as condition consciousness comes to be with consciousness mind and body sense bases contact feeling craving clinging becoming birth aging and death and the entire mass of suffering Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of volitional formations, of consciousness, of mind and body, of sense bases, of contact, of feeling, of craving, clinging, becoming, birth, aging, and death. This is the ending of the whole mass of suffering. So the Buddha here is pointing to, to me, it, 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 it's, it seems that 
we tend to solidify and, and land in one of these two extremes. Either things exist or they don't exist. I kind of was pointing to this yesterday in one of the answers to the questions about you know, the, the conditioned nature of experience me is is kind of a neither um, meaning that there's either um, um, like separate or not separate with with respect to sense of self. There's this conditioned conditioned nature of experience. There's no thing that exists in that no no entity that exists in that process of conditioning and there's no entity that and in some way there is some some that process is some unfolding but it's not a thing so somewhere between these two the buddha teaches this teaching in the middle he calls this teaching of dependent origination the teaching the middle teaching And so while the, this teaching points to the conditioned nature of experience, the, the general teaching of conditionality uh, can be expressed and is expressed in the suttas in a, in a very basic form. When this is, that is. When this comes to be, that comes to be. When this isn't, that isn't. When this ceases, that ceases. And it's just as an expression of the coming to together of experience comes together based on conditions. The falling apart of experience falls apart based on the cessation of conditions. So in general, there's a pointing to the conditioned nature of our experience throughout so much of the teaching. The teaching on dependent origination in particular, I understand to be a description of how suffering comes to be. And that's the, when it, at the end of that cycle, the Buddha says, and following from this is the arising of the entire mass of suffering. It's, it's a description of the process, the, the conditioned process by which suffering comes to be. So a couple of things about that. Suffering is conditioned. This means the conditions can change. Those conditions can be released. My understanding too about this teaching is that it is um, I would say it's, I would not call dependent origination a practice. I would call dependent origination a description of the arising of suffering. We don't practice dependent origination in terms of um, you know, it's it, it's it's not it 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 doesn't inherently there have something in it that says this is the practice of dependent origination. It's de- dependent origination is mostly how our lives have been unfolding from the time immemorial, from the beginning of our lives. This is kind of the process that has been unfolding. 
And so my, my understanding here is the Buddha is pointing to understanding that this is the process that has been unfolding. This is helpful. And so in that way, it's a teaching. It's a teaching to point us to understanding our experience in a way that we haven't understood it. And a pointing to that understanding being a condition that leads us in a new direction. Leads us in a, actually creates conditions for the entire chain to begin to fall apart. The chain of creation of suffering to, to shift into a completely different chain of conditionality, leading us to freedom. That'll be the third talk that I give a few days from now. So the important piece here, I think, is really understanding that suffering is conditioned and that understanding something about how it's conditioned is helpful. One thing I'll say, too, this came up in one of the groups this morning um, in looking at in looking at our ex- experience, the arising of some pattern of conditioning, pattern of suffering, something that's been repeated over and over again, we can begin to understand how it's conditioned. You know, we see, yeah, this this has been uh, this has been done many times by this being in this lifetime. Of course, this happens. And there can be a kind, kind of be tempting to try to figure out exactly all the details and, and what happened and when did this begin and, and what incidents led to this and, and like so really trying to figure out the conditioning. And in some ways this teaching may seem like it's encouraging that. Um, and yet at the same time the Buddha did uh, also say something along the lines of, the coming together of this moment has so much conditioning that has led to it. That, that, that the, the choices, the intentions, everything that has led to the, this moment. Essentially, he said, the workings of karma are so vast that if you try to understand it all, you'll go mad. So not only is it not so helpful to, to try to understand everything, we can't really possibly understand all the conditions that come together. So for me, this is a little bit freeing. And in my own experience, I've seen so many times that you know, there is an understanding that something is conditioned through direct experience of seeing maybe a few of the threads leading to the conditioning of this experience. Maybe a seeing of how, you know, a memory leads to a kind of a contraction. Right there, there you're seeing, seeing some of the conditioned nature of that arising. Seeing that something is conditioned is very freeing. Not just understanding on the surface, Yes, this is conditioned, but seeing it as conditioned, that has a very freeing effect on our minds. Another piece about this teaching that uh, I think is very helpful, interesting to me also, is that this process of dependent origination describes the creation of suffering, and that's the, the end where the Buddha points to, and such is the mass, the arising of the entire mass of suffering. But embedded in there, in that chain, is also a description of how the sense of self arises, the links around uh, clinging, leads to becoming, leads to birth. That's essentially in, in this 
moment-to-moment unfolding, those point to identification and selfing. And so this dependent origination teaching basically embeds in it implicitly that the process by which suffering is created and the process by which selfing happens are the same process. And so we can be curious about suffering if that's what's arising. We can be curious about the sense of self if that's what's arising. But in both cases, we're studying the same process. And so to me, this is also helpful because sometimes the teaching around exploring the sense of self can get a little bit like self-referential. It can get a little bit tied up in knots sometimes. There's a sense of some sense of self and then but it feels like I'm looking at that self and what's that I that feels like it's looking at and then it feels like an I looking at the I looking at the self and it gets a little bit you know convoluted and it feels more it feels almost more like we're applying some idea trying to find what is this sense of self sometimes that whole complex of tied into knots can just be cut right through by saying this is suffering What's that experience? And we're looking and at that, we're, we're exploring the same process there. So we don't have to try to find the not selfing or the selfing. We don't have to try to find that. What's arising in this moment? Is it suffering? Is it release? Is it ease? Is it confusion? Is it a feeling of I am? Whatever it is, we can, we can, look at that. And so a little bit about a part of this chain. I'd like to just cover a a section of it where it's most obvious. You know, it's like kinda I'm actually gonna kinda jump into the middle, start in the middle of the chain where we can land in our direct experience. It's the the fourth link. We have a body in mind. We have body, mental processes and physical processes. We've been looking at those. And so that's a little bit of a familiarity. We can, let's just start there. There's body and mind processes. And based on this body and mind, based on the sense bases that are in the body and mind. So that's the next link. There are bodily and mental processes and associated with that are these six sense bases. So there's, um, we experience input. There's input through our sense bases. We also are all pretty familiar with this. We've been watching the seeing, hearing, body sensations, smelling, touching, things arising in the mind. We've been ex- experiencing all of that. And so this is, this is uh, a piece of this chain, a piece of this uh, understanding. We, s- we Based on these sense bases, we have an eye. And with that eye, there is um, contact with a sight. This is the next link. And so dependent on the eye, without the eye, there would not be contact with the eye, eye door. And so that is, there's a dependency there. So this is pointing to some of that conditionality. The eye is required to see. The nose is required to smell. And so the contact with the sense base happens. The, the, the photons strike the eye, that's contact. There's contact. The sound waves strike the ear. That's contact. So through the contact, we experience sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and things arising in the mind. And each of these sense impressions, the next link is um, pointing to the feeling tone. 
And so when we are contacted by some sense experience, there's a feeling. So contact conditions feeling. Feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So this is the feeling tone of experience. We've also been exploring this a little bit. So again, this is conditioned. The contact, if there were no contact, there would be no feeling, no feeling tone. And so based on this feeling tone, this is where it starts to get more interesting. All of this to this point is just kind of our body and mind at work in some way. Body, eye, consciousness, seeing, happening, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Based on that feeling tone, in a very kind of really straightforward way, when something is pleasant, we like it, we want it. When something's unpleasant, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it. And so, if it's, and if it's neutral, we may just not notice it. We may just not have much. There may not be much contact around neutral sometimes. And so, this, uh, based on this feeling tone, our habit, I'll just say that, I'll start from our habit, the conditioned uh, when we don't understand the way our minds work. The habit is to want to get pleasant and get rid of unpleasant. This is craving. This is the next link in the chain. And this some process of craving, of wanting. You know, it's based in our biology. It's, it's very uh, natural. We come out of the womb this way, wanting, leaning towards pleasant, leaning away t- from unpleasant. And yet it isn't uh, the wanting itself, the craving there, the, the, the sense of neediness there is not what I, w- I think I used this term the other day. It's not hardwired. It is not th- th- that... Uh, we have that kind of tensing or craving from something pleasant is not lockstep in our minds. It is not, it does not have to happen. It just very, very habitually happens. And we've practiced it so much that we have conditioned it also very strongly. So we come out of the womb with this inclination and we practice it. So it it gets very, it gets strengthened, that pattern, that habit of like something, want it, lean towards it. And we automatically, almost automatically act on this wanting. Again, without knowing too much about how our minds work, we will automatically act on this wanting because as we talked about the other day, embedded in that wanting is a delusion that having that thing is what is going to bring happiness. So that misunderstanding about that, that wanting, that following through on that wanting is what's going to bring happiness. And that over and over again, we have experienced a s- certain kind of happiness when we followed through on the wanting. There has been a little bit of release from suffering and a little bit of delight of having something pleasant. And so again, over and over again, we've conditioned that. We understand that happiness comes from getting what we want, but what we don't understand is the fleeting nature of that happiness or that there is a a deeper form or a a, a more... um, a more reliable form of happiness that's available. And so we, we kind of habitually move toward, you know, from uh, wanting to clinging. This movement, you know, we, we try to figure out how to get it. We get it, then we, we, we cling to it. 
that, again, the craving leads to clinging. Without the craving, the, the mind wouldn't follow through. If the, if the feeling didn't lead to craving, then craving, there wouldn't be any craving to lead to clinging. So again, this conditioned arising here. And so once there's something clung to, once we kind of picked it up and said, okay, got it, or, you know, there's this latching on to something. The next, uh, the next link in the chain is called becoming. And um, I like Tanisaro Bhikkhu's description of this link. He says that becoming is that our intentions all kind of come together in the service of that, clinging to say, yes, this is where we're going. We're going to keep this. We're going to go this way. And so it's a kind of like processes of behavior generated to serve that clinging. We like this experience. It feels really good to have this sense of, I figured it out. Got this thing. This is what I can do to keep it. This is how I'm going to live my life. This is, this is, this is it. This is the way to go. So that experience of becoming is pleasant. And this is one of the hooks, I think, in this whole cycle. You know, as we think about the way we, um, you know, we, we get hooked on this cycle is because there is some kind of happiness in the in the the having, you know, the, the, that process of pleasant, liking, wanting, oh, becoming, um, if we look at, if we think about or explore the feeling associated, look back at the feeling tone associated with what's going on here, you know, wanting, so there's the there's the, the pleasant thing, this sense of like wanting, you know, the wanting to have it. The wanting itself, when we start really exploring it and looking at it, the wanting is unpleasant. And so there's that. The wanting is unpleasant. That's a piece of the of the of the engine. And so there's the thing that we want, and then there's this wanting itself that's unpleasant. And part of our uh, process, our cycle says, uh, you know, unpleasant. How do I get rid of this unpleasant? This is aversion. This is the other side, not wanting unpleasant. So how do I get rid of this unpleasant? Get that thing. That's how I get rid of this unpleasant. And so there's a kind of a, a driver there. The unpleasantness of wanting propels us to take some action to get rid of that unpleasantness. And so we, we perhaps get that thing. If we're, if we're fortunate, we get that thing. Then there's that the, the kind of the having and the becoming, the sense of, oh, figured it out. The, maybe the feeling of I'm in control. I've got it. And so the having itself, the being in association with something pleasant, I would say that's the clinging part. And there's a certain measure of pleasure associated with that. That, that being in association with something pleasant there. Or, on the other side, the being not associated with something unpleasant, that uh, non-association itself is pleasant. So the, uh, um, we get in the moment when we get something that we want, we get kind of this double hit of kind of the pleasure of the having a double hit of pleasure here, and the pleasure of the having, and the pleasure of the becoming, and also a hit of pleasure in the disappearance of the wanting. And that, we often don't even notice that part, because we're so focused on the, the having and the becoming piece. But the, the, the wanting has also disappeared. And this is a very interesting place to explore in our practice. 
because kind of I pointed to the delusion of wanting that wanting believes that the having has to happen in order for happiness to follow. That's the belief in there, the delusion embedded in wanting. Wanting is not going to give you any indication, not going to give you any sense that if the wanting goes away, there will be a different kind of happiness that happens. If the wanting goes away, even without the the, the having, there will be a release. And as I explored this piece of it, exploring, looking, really looking at the wanting, feeling the wanting, noticing the suffering of wanting, and committing myself to not following through on the wanting, but just, wow, what is that wanting? Oh, the suffering of that, the pull of that, the feeling of lack, the feeling of a hole that just needs to be filled, all of that feeling that suffering, and then seeing the conditions for that wanting just vanish because, in this case, I'm remembering a situation where it was wanting to look at somebody on a retreat, and the person went into another room. They were no longer available to be seen, and the wanting vanished. The seeing of the wanting vanishing in that moment felt like being released from a vice grip. And deeply understanding in that moment a different kind of happiness that comes from letting go. Not the kind of happiness, a different kind of happiness than comes from getting something. The having of it. Because in that having, in that becoming, there is this belief. Again, we are conditioning that belief. The have, having is where the happiness is. We're conditioning that belief. And so following on from becoming is full-blown um, birth into some kind of an identity. Things become me or mine. And again, this is where we see a sense of selfing in this process of dependent origination. Leading to, as something takes birth, as as there is this kind of identification, um, there is the inevitable impermanence of this identification, of this whole thing that was constructed, the the clinging, the becoming, the birth around that whole, this is me, this is mine. There's the inevitable impermanence of that formation. And it's dissolution. Well, actually, sometimes it's creation is suffering. You know, sometimes, sometimes the actual putting together of a sense of self is already suffering, and we feel that. I mean, we have been exploring the kind of identities around, around, um, you know, habits and patterns of anger or self-hatred or, you know, just these, these feelings of selfing. And so we self also, sometimes that congealing of a sense of self already comes with suffering. But if it doesn't, if it's a congealing of a sense of self, it's kind of like, oh, I figured it out. Got it. Know how to do this now then at some point something will happen that is kind of proof that we aren't in control because we don't have inherent control over our mind states, over what happens in the world. We do not have control. And so things will change. The conditions will fall apart. And you know, uh, something's with with something like a, an a, an identity where we've we've kind of like, oh yeah, I'm a good yogi. I know how to practice meditation. Take birth with that. You know, that whole thing has a chain 
of, of events that comes into being around it. Maybe it's as simple as, you know, sitting there breathing, knowing that, that, that attention rests and connects with a couple of breaths in a row. So there's the, the contact, the feeling, the, the perception, and then there's this clinging, this, this craving for, ooh, more breaths, or, or, you know, kind of a sense of, oh, you know, I'm beginning to get it, and, and wanting to hold on to that sense that pleasantness of I'm beginning to get it. And point, you know, kind of heading in the direction of I've figured out how to do this now. I'm a good meditator. I'm maybe even the best meditator here. And a whole kind of sense of pleasure and sense of puffing can come from that. That's becoming and birth and so, yeah, there's a few moments perhaps of a sense of, uh, with this breath, really right there, able to stay right with unfolding of experience for a few moments. And boy, we've picked that up and identified with it. And it's like, ah, that's me. I can do this now. But, you know, 10 seconds later, the mind wanders, goes off into thought, and then we wake up. Oh, I don't have control. And if we're really present in that moment, the I don't have control might be an aha, ah, not self. I cannot say, may my mind be thus. But with delusion, we may pick that up and say, oh, I failed. I'm a bad meditator. I can't do this at all. And so this kind of back and forth we may have, a suffering, there's a sense of self that we pick up, a own, and then there's proof that somehow, you know, that that, that well, we don't have control to keep that kind of steadily going through our experience. Something happens that kind of pokes a hole in that, and then we feel like we failed. So there's suffering around that. This is a mass of suffering. So this is kind of how suffering comes to be in our lives through this process, the process of Pleasant, unpleasant, wanting, not wanting, clinging, creating a whole mass of identities and views and beliefs and opinions about what makes me happy. And then over and over again, seeing it fall apart, not able to be controlled. And that, that seeing it fall apart, not able to be controlled, we usually interpret that as bad news. I'm failing somehow. But it's actually just a pointer to the truth of not-self. It's just a pointer to the truth. So there's another sutta that describes this section of experience from a slightly different perspective, a different way of describing this craving, clinging, becoming peace. And this is in a sutta called the Honeyball Sutta. And um, I'll just read a little section here. And this is this is looking at experience through the six sense bases, and so it starts with the six sense bases, just where we started in looking at dependent origination. So dependent on the eye and forms. So start right there. There's eye. There's stuff out there. There's light waves coming. So dependent on the eye and form, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. And so right there we have mental and physical processes, we've got body and mind, consciousness and mental processes going, we've got the eye and forms, and then contact. 
So that's part of the dependent origination. So again, pointing to the conditionality there. With contact as condition, there is feeling. So again, that, that link. When there's the contact, there's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Then it goes in a slightly different direction here. What one feels, that one perceives. So it brings in the process of perception that when we meet experience, there's, it's not just, it's not just feeling, but there, uh, there is, there's a perception, there's a recognition of what is there. So with, with feeling as, con- as, with feeling as, contact is conditioned, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. And so there, it actually, to me, the language is different. It doesn't say with feeling as condition, there is perception. It says what one feels, that one perceives. More to me, implying at least, the feeling of that sentence is feeling and perception come together. Feeling happens, perception happens. They co-arise. And so there's sight. There's a, a perception of what is seen. And so here's a slightly different pathway of the way craving, clinging happens. I think it has more to do with concepts and meaning than just that bare feeling. It's kind of like the the feeling tone kind of points to the the almost, um, you know, um, automatic nature or or almost amoeba-like nature of our processes, our very um, animal-like nature of our processes. All living beings tend to go towards what's nourishing, what's pleasant, away from what's noxious and unpleasant. This points to kind of more the the mental recognition of there's something perceived. And what one perceives, that one thinks about. So the process of thinking comes in. So we see a flower. There's the contact, the seeing. There's the, maybe it's pleasant. You know, there may be pleasant. And there's the perception, color, form, flower, all of those perceptions. Then there's some thinking. Maybe just some really rudimentary thinking at first. It's a flower. It's a rose. And from there, what one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. That's kind of where our minds kind of slip out into non-mindfulness. Oh, it's a rose. Oh, I wonder what kind of a rose it is. I wonder if I can get a clipping of that rose so that I can have it in my yard because it smells so good and it's got just the perfect, like, fluttering around the edges of that. We're gone. This is a form of papancha. This kind of the mind kind of just proliferating ideas, concepts, meaning how it relates to me, my life, what I'm going to do. So this is another avenue of this kind of place in the chain of feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, birth. It's a different description of of how that happens through perception, thought, and this uh, mental proliferation, the term papancha there. That term for mental proliferation is papancha. So papancha, we often, there often it is described as a kind of a, the mind run riot or, you know, the mind thinking excessively. And that is one way I believe that papancha functions in our minds. But in my looking at this word in the sutta and beginning to get curious about it and in reading in particular some of the writings of Tanasaro Bhikkhu and um, Bhikkhu um, Nanamoli, 
there's a different and deeper perspective on what papancha is that I think is important for us to reflect on. Because there's some places in the suttas, and this is kind of what got my attention, there's some places in the suttas where the Buddha says something like, liberation is for one who doesn't have papancha. Almost like pairing them or putting them close together. And liberation is more than simply the absence of thought or the absence of the mind thinking a lot. There's something deeper going on that we're clinging to. And I think this deeper kind of clinging and becoming is part of what this term papancha is pointing to. So there's some alternative translations for this word than mental proliferation, uh, objectification, complication, conceptualization, and classification are are four words that I've seen various translators use for this. And, uh, you know, in thinking about this in some of these translations, like conceptualization, for instance, reflecting on, you know, so we think about things and we form concepts and ideas about things and we can't live, you know, so perception is a process we can't live without. We also can't live without thinking. But according to the Buddha, we can live without Papancha. We probably, we may not be able to live without concepts. I was talking about this some yesterday too, the, the, the way concepts, that we basically misunderstand concepts and the, the danger in concepts is that we take them to be something that they're not. We take them, we, we take them to be kind of a reality. And so we can't live without perception, concepts, ideas. Those mental processes are part of the aggregates, part of just the tumbling on of a human life. And, and boy, my sense is the Buddha communicated a lot of concepts, so there were still concepts going on in the, in the mind of the Buddha. And yet, as I mentioned yesterday, he did not misapprehend them. And so my, my reflection on this term of papancha is, is papancha how we misapprehend concepts? The creation and belief of a concept, perhaps that's what's pointed to by this papancha. The belief that our concepts, belief in our concepts as reality. There's a, a word that I like that I think might serve for this. Uh, the word reification, which the definition of reification from, I think this is from Wikipedia, is the process of misunderstanding a concept as an actual thing. And that's what I think happens with concepts. That's a fundamental delusion. And so this, this is the part of concepts that's problematic, the part of the process of perception and concept and meaning where the misapprehension happens. And so maybe this is what Papancha points to, this very deep tendency we have to misapprehend our concepts, to take them to be something real. something solid. This process of taking things to be solid, taking things to be real, this also describes something of our process of selfing, that we take that sense of self to be something, an entity going through space and time. 
And this whole process of reification, of believing concepts, of believing a sense of self, feeds back into this chain of dependent origination and becomes a condition that keeps us caught in the chain. It's essentially ignorance. The head of the chain of dependent origination, I said I wasn't gonna start at the top, (laughs) the basic. This, kind of the papancha, the creation of the, this is real, the belief in the reality of concept. This is a fundamental form of ignorance that then influences how we receive experience. And that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. That part of the that part of the process. Both the teaching on dependent origination and the teaching in the Honeyball Sutta cover that terrain and so I'll I'll explore that tomorrow. The I'm pointing um you know, I said this isn't a practice. The dependent origination is a description of how suffering unfolds. And yet there are practices associated with this teaching. And in particular, there's one, uh, one sutta, again, actually interesting, this one's called Right View, also, you know, the one I started with was an exploration of right view. How do we call this right view? What is right view? And this other teaching is, is also a teaching on right view. And it is basically looking at various places of our experience, anything that's arising. And in fact, it goes through every single one of these links of dependent origination. and says, oh, you can look at this link. Becoming, for instance, or let's look at clinging. Clinging. Check out clinging. If that's what you're noticing, that's the arising, you can know this is clinging. This is how clinging arises. You may notice at times, this is how clinging ends. And you may also recognize that there's a way to understand clinging, essentially, a, a, a way towards understanding letting go of clinging. And this is a uh, four-part framework that is what is described in the f- teaching on the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering. Suffering arises, suffering ceases, and there's a way leading to the cessation of suffering. Essentially applying that, the Four Noble Truths I understand really to be kind of tools to meet experience. We understand suffering, let go of its, co- of its arising, um, understand its ending, and cultivate the path. And the, the teaching points to at any place in this chain, we can meet experience and understand it, and there is freedom right there. This teaching of dependent origination, often um, there is a pointing to where we break this chain is between feeling and craving, because that's really where the constriction begins, you know, describing that chain in some ways. It's like, oh, there's, there's pleasant, unpleasant, and the, the craving is when it kind of begins to get knotted up. And that's a very powerful place. At, it is a very powerful place to witness this arising in this unfolding. And yet it is not the only place where freedom can be found. Whatever is arising, this is what I love about this, this teaching, the, the teaching, that's in Majjama 9, for those of you who are interested in that. Um, we can witness the arising of craving, of becoming, of suffering, of feeling, understand it. And the understanding clinging, the arising of clinging, the cessation of clinging, and the way leading to the cessation of clinging, one here and now makes an end to suffering. That pattern repeated for every single link in the chain. So no matter what you wake up into, 
the possibility of freedom is there. And that's what we're practicing. Doesn't matter what object is arising. Allowing, opening to the understanding. That is how wisdom is cultivated and where freedom can be found. To be continued. Let's sit for a moment. (laughs) 